Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at and then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. You can't refuse to kill us in this car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, folks. It's your host, Adam. And on the ones and twos is producer Rob. Been battling the squirrels all week. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Damn squirrels. That's right. We, we got a story about the squirrels. We'll yeah, talk yeah. About how uh, your dog, your, your dog is the. Uh, yeah, my dog earned a new title. Uh, yeah, she's uh, she is now known as the Squirrel Slayer. <laughs> Protecting the studio. Bless her heart. Right, right. <laughs> and we got uh, Sir Fiel. Yes, sir. And we had a few words right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> over there smoking a stogie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give my brewski on too. And say hello, Joe. What? Hello, a, you guys uh, you, the, the mic's right there. You got to pull it towards yourself. Hello, everybody. Okay, yeah. He's he's got the mic like a rapper, man. Like, what's going <laughs> yeah. on? He's a cup that, you know. <laughs> he's cupping the mic over here. <laughs> and we have the guest on the line because you've been hearing him laughing at us, um, Craig Chicone. Craig, welcome what's to up, gentlemen. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, sir. Well, thanks so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be back with you guys. Yeah, and it's, it's, and it's good to see that uh, that you know the squirrel population control because here in michigan they've just okayed to let to let hunters you know take care of the deer population because it's overpopulated so is uh-huh. that what you do down there you just you let dogs run loose and kill all the squirrels 
Only the ones that true through my electrical lines. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And, Fair our, enough. and, and the internet lines. <laughs> and the internet lines. Yeah, there you go. See, we've we, been having problems with, uh, well, not in the last two shows. The last two shows, we've been fine. So, knock on wood, we're fine this show. I don't but, know how, why it's working. It's like magic that we have internet right yeah, now. Yeah, it's like, it's like because hanging the, on by a thread. Yeah, the, <laughs> the cable line going out the wall is literally there's one little tiny piece of copper that's four inches long. <laughs> Holding wow. the cable together. <laughs> That's a powerful piece of copper. <laughs> Absolutely. They're bionic weaponized Illuminati squirrels trying to <laughs> shut us up. <laughs> so what, what else on Conspiranormal, right? Exactly, right. exactly. The, 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 they know that uh, they don't want us. They've sent the squirrels in here to, to, we, to silence us is what They're it is. Yeah, sleeper Absolutely. cell squirrels. Yeah. So, so, so his Deep dog squirrel. killed the squirrel. Deep state squirrels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the deep we need, states. We need some fan <laughs> art, everybody. Send us some fan art of the deep state squirrels. <laughs> Absolutely, squirrels in black. <laughs> what a deep squid squirrel looks like. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, reason we've got you on, and I thought about doing this because um, I realized that this year is the fiftieth anniversary of not one but two assassinations. And right. two very important assassinations. We've already passed one of those milestones, which was April 4th of this year. April 4th, 1968, being the assassination of Martin Luther King. And then we're coming up on next month now, June the 5th of 1968 was when it happened, was the assassination of RFK. So right. we didn't get too far. I think the first show that we had you on, we talked about assassinations of the 1960s, but we more talked right. about like Malcolm X, uh, Medgar Evers, Fred Hampton, some more kind of like, I guess you could say a minor, a little bit more minor events that weren't as well known um, at right, the time. Exactly. Uh, these were, but these, you know, of course, <laughs> JFK and RFK, MLK, these are kind of like the trinity of the assassinations of the 60s. So absolutely, absolutely. Here, here we are on 50 years later. And we had you right. on earlier as well about uh, last year. We had you on about Vietnam a little bit, uh, talking about the documentary. And the, again, the reason I thought about having you on was I watched a documentary on the Martin Luther King assassination. Uh, this was right. from PBS American Experience. It was called, I think, something like Road to Memphis. Road, Road to Memphis. I think it was yep. what it was called. So there's some madness going on. Uh, yeah, that, that's my dog and, the, and his attitude towards squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about that. And so I just kind of want to get your, th- first of all, let's kind of get your thoughts on that about uh, that particular documentary about whether there was was it was it historical was it accurate how did you feel about it? Well, like like I said, I, I use the term documentary quite loosely because it really wasn't a documentary. It was a, almost a feel good piece about you know, and, and less than an hour long too uh, yeah. to to cover the quote unquote assassination. But it, taking as given that James Earl Ray was the assassin, so. You know, it's it's it presupposes that, and that's the that's the narrative that they use. And um, so, when I when when you ask whether it was historically accurate, it was 
at least in the minds of the people who were interviewed. And of course, you'll notice that nobody of any real import, um, with the exception of, uh, of James Earl Ray's first lawyer, um, no one was interviewed. Uh, now, to give credit to PBS, the reason that they weren't interviewed is, well, they're all dead. Mark Lane, Harold Weisberg, uh, James Earl Ray himself, um, Dick Gregory, these, you know, the pioneers of, of mm-hmm. opening up this case and, and getting it uh, reinvestigated in, in the late 1970s. Yeah, Gregory died uh, last year. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but, but there, but William Pepper, who, who has made a name for himself writing three books on his experiences being Ray's lawyer and trying to get a new trial for Ray before he died, um, his health concerns, Ray's, uh, health issues, um, he needed a liver transplant. And so his, his declining health was one of the impetuses for trying to get a new investigation open before, before he died. And that was when you saw uh, Martin Luther King III, who looked so eerily like his father, met Ray in prison and had an interview on CNN face-to-face. Here's, here's the victim's son with the accused assassin face-to-face, mm-hmm. and where he's asking him point blank, did you kill my father? And he said no. But, but none of these people. William Pepper wasn't, wasn't interviewed. Uh, unfortunately, Ray's other brothers... Uh, two other brothers, uh, Jerry and, um, and the other one escapes me now. Um, they have subsequently died. So not too many people around that could vouch for Ray or at the very least bring, um, many of the inconsistencies and problems with the government's case against Ray to light. So it was a very one-sided anytime you see Gerald Posner interviewed, As yeah. the expert, you know that something's awry because, um, you know, he, he did a one-off book on, on the uh, King assassination and unsurprisingly, you know, concluded that, that Ray did it and did it alone. Yeah, he basically so just the, supports the, documentary, the official story every time. Exactly. So yeah. the documentary, you know, it, it sounds, you know, it, it sounds very uh, authentic because you've got people who have been studying it, who've written books on the case or at least on Ray talking as if they knew the man. Of course, none of them ever met or knew who Ray was, but made him out to be this, this perverted. And when I say perverted, I mean, literally, you know, sexually perverted, um, racist that was more than willing to throw away his life in order to be paid $50,000 to kill King. So, um, Unlike other documentaries that that even are one-sided on the JFK assassination or the Robert Kennedy assassination or even Malcolm X, unlike those that at least uncover uh, new documentary evidence, new photographic evidence, new even uh, um, audio evidence, uh, even those that that find um, you know, photographic films that, that we haven't seen before and restore them and digitize them and at least bring that to our attention. This didn't do that. This was just the towing the line, the government line that Ray did this. And, and I guess, and, and the, one of the things that I wanted to spell right away, because it seems to float around all of these assassinations is apologists for the government or for the official reports of all of these murders, uh, is that we as a country can't wrap our heads around the fact that these 
that these, you know, civic political leaders, these these people that we came to know and love and adore, um, we can't wrap our heads around the fact that they were taken from us so senselessly by these mm-hmm. losers, these loners, like Lee Harvey Oswald, Sirhan Sirhan, and James Earl Ray. And so the reason that we grap- grapple onto or grasp onto uh, conspiracy theories is because we, we can't just believe that it was the work of these lone, uh, troubled individuals. And so we want to say that there was a bigger conspiracy, you know, to, to, to make the, their victims, you know, uh, equal to their, their reputation. And, and I would argue that the whole reason that we have this bastion of researchers who have been studying it for, like you said, 50 years, mm-hmm is because don't these guys and everything that they did and everything that they sacrificed, doesn't it, isn't it a better memorial to them to make sure that, or to ask of their investigators that they don't botch it, that they don't destroy evidence, that they, that they do a complete and thorough investigation. Don't they deserve at least that? You know, I mean, Harold Weisberg pointed out that, that specifically on John Kennedy's autopsy, um, Lee Harvey Oswald, his accused assassin, got the uh, an autopsy that's worthy of a medical journal, while John Kennedy got an autopsy worthy of a Bowery bum, right? Yeah. So, so here's this assassin who gets the medical legal autopsy that that is unscrappable and 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 uh, you know, um, by a reputable forensic pathologist. And here, the president of the United States, who was murdered in front of his wife and in front of all these people, he couldn't even get an autopsy, that, you know, that that would be admissible in court. So, so, so I say to those people, you know, who who say that we have a knee jerk reaction to just wanting a conspiracy as opposed to a lone nut. No, most of us simply want accountability, want transparency. We don't want the files and the photographs destroyed. We don't want, you know, we want thorough investigations because aren't these these men that we're talking about worth it? You know, mm-hmm. and their sacrifice wasn't that worth it. <clears throat> so all, all of that to answer your question about the the so-called documentary. There yeah. there are much better documentaries out there if you want to know either about King himself or about the assassination. Yeah, well, it really didn't touch on you know, it really didn't touch on, on it, it, because look, if you wanted to talk about the King assassination, then, then we would basically need a month because what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the assassination itself and the evidence? Do you want to talk about the FBI's investigation into it? Do you want to talk about the fact that Ray wasn't apprehended like Oswald was a few hours later? He was apprehended two months later in a completely different country. Right, right. And then... Um, you know, his trial or so-called trial, much like Sirhan Sirhan's, it wasn't a tr- evidentiary trial. It was a trial to, for him to try to escape the death penalty. That was just like Sirhan Sirhan. So the, the defense, that is Ray's own lawyer, stipulated to the state's case. They didn't even argue the state's case in front of the jury. They said, look, we're going to stipulate that he did it. <laughs> you know, so let's just have this, this trial to make sure that my client doesn't go to the electric chair. And sure enough, 
by pleading guilty, Ray avoided the electric chair. Yeah. It was the same thing with Sirhan Sirhan. I, you know, on the advice of really shady lawyers, um, admitted guilt to something they didn't do in order to, to save their own lives. Uh, do you want to talk about the, you know, the, the task force, uh, the FBI task force that investigated it in 77, or then the House Select Committee on Assassinations that investigated King's assassination in 77, 78, 79? You know, I mean, it, it, there's just so much about this case that could be talked about, um, you know, that, it, that it's, pretty, it's pretty daunting. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll go with specifics, you know, yeah, as, well, as yeah. we go along. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk it, keep it simple because we don't really have months because you're, you're honestly right because you could go forever with this stuff because that's how deep exactly. all this stuff goes. And it's not just one level that can just be completely discounted in 20 minutes. There's several different exactly. levels to all of this, whether it's Martin Luther King or – RFK, yeah. JFK, 9-11, is, it, there's all kinds of levels that, that are in different levels. Of where, well, if this doesn't, if, if like this doesn't point to a conspiracy, then this part definitely does. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And then, of course, and, and let us not forget that we're embarking on another uh, anniversary in just a couple of days. It's not, we haven't hit 50 yet, but in two years we will, and that is the shooting to Kent State. Oh, yeah, True. May 5th, where four right? students lost their lives, and it's the and it's the same kind of thing. It, yeah. What what was the investigation like? Was it impartial? Did anyone stand trial really? And with with the with the primary evidence of face it in court, and the answer for all of these is no. Now, is that a coincidence or is that is that by design? You know, the thing about the RFK case, which again, like you pointed out, happened two months after King's. Mm-hmm. assassination was that the uh the district attorney in in um los angeles said we are not going to have another dallas which of course was was a was a indictment of how the case the jfk case was handled in dallas how inept it was how the evidence was was bungled and and destroyed and and so forth and so on and he said well we're not going to have this happen in the rfk case no not not at all we're we're, we're going to be you know very diligent and and you know we're not going to make the same mistakes in dallas well not only did they make the same mistakes in dallas they made fresh new ones forgetting of course that king's assassination two months before that was the same pattern of ineptitude of unaccountability, of destruction of evidence, of of a non-prosecutorial finding of a lone assassin in in King's case, even before the assassin was apprehended. Right. I mean, how do you do that? How how do you say that King was was assassinated by one person when you haven't even arrested anyone yet? So so these <laughs> themes that you know that run through, like you said, the tr- the trinity of of assassinations in the sixties they're all similar in their incompetence and, and, you know, then it's up to you to decide whether or not it was intentional or if we have the most incompetent, you know, police departments in Memphis, Los Angeles, and Dallas. Just as an aside, you know, if you have a higher conspiracy conspirators here, just as a speculation, would they have set this up to where we know that this city has a really corrupt police force and they're going to bungle the investigation. That's almost like part of the uh, part of the conspiracy in and well, of itself. 
Well, yeah, but but again, please keep in mind, and your listeners got to keep in mind about uh, about what what it was like in the 1960s as far as institutional respect was concerned and and institutional jurisdiction. You're not going to have in the 1960s. You weren't going to have too many sheriffs or chief of police chiefs of police that would say to the Secret Service or the FBI, uh, "Fuck off, we're going to do this investigation ourselves." When the FBI swooped in and said we're taking over. They, they, you know, they said, yeah, go ahead. You're the FBI. You know, who are we? So it was that, it was that, I guess that reliance on the, uh, reputation of the FBI. And of course the, the, um, intimidation factor of the FBI that allowed them then to conduct the investigation they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And, And I guess that, that, that's what has to be remembered. Conspiracies do not have to be planned out, written out, mapped out every step of the way. Sometimes you let pieces fall into place and you have contingency plans if it happens this way, if it happens this way, if it happens this way. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, damage control. You've got, you know, um, scenarios in which you can handle anything that happens that you weren't expecting. Um, it's, it's like, it's like you're watching a soccer game, right? And somebody takes a shot from far out. The defender dives in front of the shot. It goes off his leg and then goes into the net. Well, is that a conspiracy to to score on the goalkeeper by his own teammate? Or was it just a fluke? You know, I mean, some things happen because they're set in motion, right? Not knowing what the outcome is going to be, but confident that should anything go wrong, we've got people in place or we have protocols in place that can minimize any damage to that. Um, the, 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 the example that I always give about part of conspiracy, but not knowing that you're part of a conspiracy is, uh, is special agent James Hosty, uh, down in the Dallas, uh, field office in 1963, who was, trying to contact Oswald for an interview. And he went to Oswald's house a couple of times and instead interviewed Marina. When Oswald found out about this, he was incensed. He went down to the field office to talk to James Hostie to basically say, leave my wife alone. She's got nothing to do with, you know, whatever I'm involved in, you leave my wife alone. So he writes him this note, right? Cause Hostie wasn't in the office when, when Oswald visited. So he scribbles this angry note on a piece of paper it's given to Hosty. Hosty doesn't do anything with it, just sticks it in a file. But after the assassination, and after Oswald is killed two days later, Hosty then takes it to his supervisor and says, well, what do I do with this note? And his supervisor says, destroy it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Hosty goes into the bathroom and he flushes it down the toilet. Well, I mean, Hosty's part of the conspiracy now, even though... He doesn't know why his boss told him to destroy it. He didn't ask questions. Right. He, he was a G man and he did what he was told to do. He's just so a cog in a machine. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. he's going to do basically the same thing that any law enforcement official will do, whether it's a cop, whether it's a sheriff, whether it's, you know, whatever, that if you're told to do something by a superior, you're going to do it. And it goes right on down the line, whether it's a mayor that, that has, you know, intelligence documents destroyed or it's, you know, a, a chief police that, that has photographs destroyed in a, in a hospital incinerator. You do what you're told. And that's that. 
<laughs> right. so, so conspiracies can happen, you know, they, they can they can either be very, very contrived or they can just be free for alls where we let the chips fall where they are or wherever they will. Well, let's talk about King. Um, you know, the one of the the motivations for killing King and one of the things that I hear all the time about why King may have been killed was because of mm-hmm. his speaking out against Vietnam. Right. So and that's true, and that's 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 more of a late development in in King's um, political and socioeconomic thinking. Um, he wasn't always against the Vietnam War, you know. I mean, the Vietnam War started for real in '65, but he's not coming out publicly and and thoughtfully against the war until '67. So uh, what's what's his change of heart? Well, you know, whether it's, you know, an arc of consciousness, of, of learning more, of being more bold, because some of his nonviolent methods aren't working, or he's, he's facing um, different ideologies in the uh, Black liberation movement in the form of Black power and Black militancy, and he has got to adjust. Kind of like what Malcolm X said is that is once he was once he he um, recanted his indoctrinated all white people are the devils, and he split from the nation of Islam. Actually, went you know to Mecca and went to you know to, to the Middle East and and became and started thinking for himself. He said when he came back that he would work with anyone who was for human and civil rights. I mean, this is the same Malcolm X that was, that was calling all of the other civil rights leaders at the time, including Martin Luther King, uncle Tom's Mm -hmm. right. You know, and, and, but now he has a change of heart. I think it was the same thing with, with Martin Luther King and his stance on Vietnam. I think he was also changing his stance on, on nonviolence, but that's, but, but him speaking out on Vietnam wasn't what, the government claims was the reason that Ray killed him. It was racism because that was the easy thing to do. You know, it's easy to pin the murder of uh, the civil rights leader in the sixties on a racist, just like it was easy to pin the assassination of a president on, on a communist, you know, at the height of the cold war. So it was, it was easy to, to sell that to the American people as the motivation for this person having been killed. And so if you can paint the accused assassin as, you know, whatever, whatever ideology you need to paint him with, whether it's communism, whether it's racism, whether it's in, in Saran Saran's case, uh, um, anti-Israel, you know, um, sentiments, it's so much easier to convict them in, in, in the, in the press. So, so Martin Luther King, uh, while he was speaking out against the war in Vietnam, um, that wasn't one of the motivations that, that anyone attributed to, to raise alleged motivations for killing him. It was pure racism. The, what was King doing in, in, in Memphis? Why was he there? Uh, well, he, it was a return trip that, that King was making to Memphis, uh, because his first trip there to assist in a sanitation workers, uh, wildcat strike, uh, turned violent. Unbeknownst to him, uh, certainly beyond his control, um, you have a crowd of two, three thousand people 
who are marching in the streets. And like I said, some of this, this militant, uh, some of this uh, more uh, vibrato and brave young black uh, liberators are, you know, are, are less and less patient with, with the nonviolent uh, movement. And so whoever was, was responsible um, window windows started being broken. And so when vandalism started happening, then the police moved in, of course, with their, with their calming influence always. Um, and a 16 year old, uh, a 16 year old was, was shot and killed in, in the melee. Uh, and so Martin Luther King basically fled, uh, fearing for his safety. Uh, I don't know if it was his choice or if it was his, you know, um, the security team, or the people who were around him that said, look, you got to get out of here and let this thing cool down. Um, so he did retreat and then came back uh, in late March to once again, March with the striking sanitation workers. Um, and that's why he was in Memphis. So this was, this was a prologue to, to the uh, poor people's campaign that he was organizing for Washington DC later that year. <clears throat> so he felt, he felt compelled to be there with these workers who, who were not making enough money, who were overworked, um, in the sanitation department. Um, you know, and so that's, that's where he felt he needed to be at that time. And then the, so the official story is, is that Ray was in a boarding house next to the Lorraine motel. And well, the, well, yeah, yeah. Across a courtyard. Okay. Uh, if you, if you think of it, I mean, uh, we don't have the, the advantage of pictures or anything like that to show your listeners. But, um, yeah, if you would, if you would imagine that you have one building on the other side, there's, there's a large courtyard and, and a, like a side street that divides the Lorraine Motel from, uh, Bessie Brewer's rooming house. It was a, it was an enclave of buildings, you know, and, and each part of the building was a different business. Uh, one was a bar, then the rooming house. And then there was a, a like an amusement, um, called canopies amusement store. Um, so it was like, 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 a, like a, just a row of, of, um, of storefronts. And at the back of that, of, of that row of storefronts was the bathroom window for the rooming house that looked out over the, the courtyard and onto the Lorraine motel. Okay. And then he was, so yeah, so King, so, King he, was so he rented a room, he rented a room in that yeah. rooming house, uh, that was, uh, one room away from the bathroom where the, um, shot allegedly came from, uh-huh. um, using a rifle, much like Oswald. Remember, remember listeners, um, Oswald ordered his rifle through the mail. Uh, Ray picked his up at a, at a sporting goods store. Uh-huh. But of course, then then returned his original because he got the wrong one, and exchanged it for a different one. And much like um, we can surmise with Lee Harvey Oswald, he was told to do it. Ray actually says that he was told to buy a pair of binoculars and to buy this rifle, um, and and to and to meet uh, this person that that he had met up in Canada um, at at Jim's Grill. So, but you, but you have to remember that, that, that Ray at this point at, at the time of King's assassination was a fugitive. He had escaped from prison. 
So for a year, he was he was basically on the run, and he went lots of different places. He went he went to Los Angeles, he went to Canada, he went to Mexico, um, Alabama, and then of course Memphis. Um, now you have to ask yourself, well, if he had been in prison, escaped, how in the hell is he getting all over the country and to other countries and bought a car <laughs> with no money? So <clears throat> the FBI tried very, very hard to find any evidence that Ray, who was a small time, um, burglar and, and robber, uh, how he could have, how he could have gotten enough money. And, and as, as much as they tried to pin unsolved bank robberies on him, they simply couldn't do it. As a matter of fact, that, that, that FBI task force report from 1977, which I spoke of earlier, concluded that it still remains a mystery where he got his money. And that's a lot of money. Yeah. So, so just like, well, how could Oswald have traveled to Mexico and, uh, you know, the Soviet Union and gotten back and blah, blah, blah. How could he <laughs> have uh, made all those extravagant trips if he didn't have any money? So, and then of course, that's, that's a question that, that was never fully either investigated or completely answered by the government. Yeah, just so, kind of glossed over. So, right. So Ray's in Memphis. He finds himself in Memphis now, uh, ostensibly because he's just so pissed off at King uh, because, you know, he's, he's a virulent racist. And so he needs to, he needs to kill King. Um, and yeah, and, and from the bathroom of his rooming house, um, he takes one shot at King and, and it, it hits its mark quite effectively and, uh, then flees and then is able to, to elude capture until two months later when he's, when he's tagged in, in at Heathrow airport in London. Now, there's been a lot of speculation on the this character that he is supposed to meet called Raul. Yes. About who this may have been. Right. What's kind of the speculation yeah. on the possibilities of if, if this person existed, who would he have been? Well, yeah, well, according, actually, according to the government, uh, Raul was simply just a, a, a pseudonym for one of his brothers. Uh, Ray had two, two other brothers. Uh-huh. And, um, again, uh, some of the, some of the robberies that took place, they did, you know, in collusion with each other, others, they didn't. Um, but they were trying to say that Raul was simply, uh, the way that Ray got this money and they got this money through, through, you know, petty, petty crimes along the way that they had been traveling together and that, you know, that they were just robbing, robbing as they needed to get to wherever they were. So in the government's mind, uh, well, depending on which report you ask, it's either one of his brothers, Raul is either one of his brothers or a completely made up fictitious character that Ray was trying to pin all of this on. According to Ray himself, Raul was somebody that he simply met in Canada, in Toronto. Um, uh, he's at a tavern. He's, you know, he's again, he's on the run. Uh, and this guy comes up, approaches him and asks him if he wants to get involved in, in a money-making scheme, um, which Ray later fi- figures out is a gun-running scheme between the U.S. and Canada. And Ray, again, needing money and being a petty criminal, says, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And so that's why he now finds himself doing um, these jobs that Raul has him do, 
and doing things, obtaining things that Raul tells him to obtain, like this rifle, like binoculars, like, you know, be here at this particular time. And um, so that's that's according to Ray himself. But but as far as as the identity of Raul, uh, it has never been known. Uh, And like I said, Ray dying in 1998 uh, precludes us probably from ever finding out. I remember there was a possibility, I may have read somewhere, that some people thought it was James Jesus Angleton that might have been Raul. Uh, actually, now that you say that, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Angleton is, is, is a strange character because of, of, of the fact that he was a career CIA agent, and uh, him and David Atley Phillips and uh, others being either masters of disguises or being in the right place at the right time. Now, whether they, they were handlers for either uh, George DeMorenschild, who befriended Oswald in Dallas or, or Oswald himself, or like you said, James Earl Ray, um, these are, these are questions that have been proffered and, and are absolutely worthy of investigation. Unfortunately, because of the bodies, the governmental bodies that have investigated the JFK assassination and, and the, Martin Luther King assassination, they didn't want to dig any deeper. Or, like I said about the institutional respect and uh, authority that intelligence agencies like the CIA and the FBI had, they didn't want to press them. They they simply didn't want to have the power of of their investigative body to go up against the CIA uh, to 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 flesh some of this stuff out and to and to try to to make these kind of connections that have been suggested, but you're absolutely right. Raul, um, that was one of the uh, possibilities of who, of who Raul was. That is being a handler, a CIA agent career, CIA station chief, um, being a handler for one of, one of the most notorious assassins of, in our history. Now, I was reading today about some of the lawsuits that the King family family did. Uh, they actually sued yeah. this guy named Lee Jowers, who's kind of yeah. an alternate suspect uh, yeah. to Ray. Uh, probably the strongest one, and it seemed like it went. It seemed like there. It depended on who you spoke to. Like the the FBI said that his sister helped him out, made everything up so she could get right. money for her. She could get money for her income tax, uh, to pay her income sure. tax, that kind of stuff like that. So was this guy, was he a possibility as the real assassin or is this just kind of another dead end? He absolutely was because, um, his name was Lloyd Jowers and okay. he was the owner of Jim's grill, which was right next to Bessie Brewer's, uh, rooming house where the alleged shot took place. So not only do we have him in, in the, the absolutely in the area, uh, where King was, was, uh, was killed. Uh, but you also have an association, uh, with, with James Earl Ray. Now Lloyd Jowers, before he died, there's a bed deathbed confession where he claims that he was in fact, um, uh, approached by, if I remember correctly, a syndicate in St. Louis, Missouri, of all places, uh, one of the one of the uh, places that Ray knows very well because he was he was uh, raised there for a short period of time. Um, that it was 
Jowers, who was approached by the syndicate or a representative of the syndicate to hire a hitman to kill King. So according to Jowers, he wasn't actually the hitman. He hired someone to do the, to, to, to do the assassination. And it wasn't Ray. Cause he said, I mean, the last person I would hire to, to kill King would be, would be James Earl Ray. So, so, um, again, we have somebody who claims to have, uh, firsthand knowledge of who did in fact kill King and why. Um, and now that he has died, uh, I mean, his, his testimony is still there. Like you said, his sister's testimony is still there and there are still threads that can be followed. But of course the justice department has not, uh, even at the urging of the King family, even, even as James Earl Ray was dying and, and wanted a new trial to set the record straight. Um, they, they simply refused refused to do that. So, so where a portion of this history has been lost forever, like I said, there are still some threads that can still be followed and investigated and at least, um, either, either completely proven to be false or certainly within the realm of the, in, within the realm of possibility. So I think that Jowers was an important figure just to what extent we don't know yet. But those are the those are the reports. Either that he was he was the actual hitman, which some people contend, and he just said that he was hired to hire, you know, like he was the middleman for right. the actual assassin, or like Jowers himself said, hey, I was just the middleman. What do so, you think? So what do you think happened? Uh, if you had to speculate, what, what who did this? Who might have pulled this off? Well, and, and from a lot of the conspiracy theories, it's the FBI. And that is about as easy to point to as a motivation for the FBI as racism is to point to, to James Earl Ray. That is, people that have even the slightest understanding of Martin Luther King knows that he was hounded by the FBI um, from, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, that Jagger Hoover considered him to be um, a hoax, a fraud, uh, communist infiltrated, um, and one of the biggest internal threats to the United States of America. So having declared King an actual enemy, uh, the, the amount of surveillance that was, was uh, assigned to King, that he was bugged, that his lawyers were bugged, um, and surveyed, surveilled constantly. Um, and even, uh, methods of COINTELPRO or counterintelligence, uh, methods were, were used against King, like the, the infamous suicide letter where somebody anonymously wrote to King urging him to kill himself Yeah, because we have, we have the tapes of, of your sexual deviancy and just look, Jagger Hoover was so into that. He, he himself a sexual deviant. That's probably right, why right, right, he right. was so obsessed <laughs> with the sex lies of everyone that you know he 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 investigated. That that he put this this forth against King. Um. So so, of course, people are going to look at well, Jagger Hoover. He has a, he has a, a huge reason for wanting King dead, and so wasn't the FBI. Well, it's not quite that clear cut much like 
the the remaining JFK assassination documents were supposed to have been released, and it was up to Trump to to either sign off on it or give intelligence agencies who created these documents an opportunity to say why he should continue to classify them. Well, he's, he's, he has stalled on that, so they have not been released. It's the same thing with the King assassination as well. When the House Select Committee on Assassinations reinvestigated in the late 70s, they sealed all of their records for 50 years. Well, there has not been a public outcry about that. It has basically been centered on JFK's uh, documents. And I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why Kennedy's assassination is more important than King's in the in the eyes of of you know researchers or historians or even the general public. Uh, but much of the evidentiary um, much of the evidence that the FBI even relied on to come to their conclusions have been sealed. The interviews that they've done, the leads that they've followed, uh, even the staff of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, their leads and their interviews are all sealed. So, so we really don't know the extent to which the FBI could have been involved. It's not as clear cut as, say, like with Fred Hampton, which was a, absolutely a state assassin, a state-sponsored assassination. Right. Um, but certainly the motivation is there. Um, we just don't have the documentation um, to establish that. But what I think happened was that that it was an, an attempt by whoever wanted him dead, whether it was a conspiracy of of the FBI found out that there was a plot to kill Kennedy and allowed it to happen. Just like in New York City, you know, when when the the. Uh, the New York police department knew that there was going to be an attempt on uh, Malcolm's life. I mean, how many attempts on Malcolm's life were there before he was finally assassinated in 65, what 11. And they knew all of them. They had to have, if you know, because he was surveilled just as much as King was. So if they caught wind of a plot and said, well, you know what? We're not going to stop it. That's not exactly the FBI killing King, but it's allowing it to happen. Not you know either whether withdrawing uh, task force um, units that were assigned to the area around the Lorraine Motel, but then pulled them back on the fourth, or dismissing the 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 black um, detectives who were supposed to be watching King, you know you dismiss them for the night. You know they may have moved some things around and may have directed certain things to happen, but if like I said, if they knew that something was going to happen to King and allowed it to happen, then it's just as bad. But, you know, legally, it's not it's not the same. I'm just saying um, we don't know which of the, those scenarios took place, whether the FBI had a direct involvement in his assassination or whether they knew that it was going to happen and simply allowed it to take place. Right. And then covered that up. Right. Get somebody, get somebody to blame. Yeah. Well, it's, it was one of the, it was one of the methods that that, that uh, Hoover said was was quite effective. That is, if you have people, look, you're you're already talking about a, a deeply divided country at the time with all of the liberation movements, not just the Black Liberation Movement, but also the women's liberation, gay liberation, uh, the student student uh, movement, the anti-war movement. We are completely divided in the 1960s as a country. So. If, if, if foment already exists 
then you stoke the fires of that and and let it burn. And that's exactly what COINTELPRO was designed to do. These programs that were designed to pit these these groups or organizations or even individuals against each other where there was already animus and they'll kill each other off. Yeah. That's what they were hoping to do with the Black Panther Party and us, which was a Afrocentric uh uh you know black militant um, group in, in California, you stoke the fire between these two competing black liberation movements, the, the Black Panther Party and us, and, and you, and you, you know, send anonymous letters, you, uh, defamatory cartoons and posters, um, designed to get them pissed off at each other enough that they'll just kill each other off. And the FBI just stands back and watches it happen. Uh, the same thing with, with, um, Malcolm X and, and the nation of Islam and, you know, even in Chicago with Fred Hampton, it was, it was the Black Panther Party and uh, the uh, Black Peace Zone Nation. But it didn't work in Chicago. That's why they were pissed off at Fred Hampton because he wasn't buying it. Huh. <laughs> he and Jeff Fort didn't didn't buy it. You know, they they still hated each other and they still they still knew that they couldn't work together because they had different different aims and goals. But as long as they didn't work against each other, they were fine. You know what I mean? So they weren't going to have any of that. And that's one, I think, again, one of the reasons why Fred Hampton had to be killed because he was entirely too smart for that. Mm. But, um, as far as, uh, yeah, as far as King is concerned, you just, you, you let, you stoke the fire that's already there and, and watch everyone burn down and you can just stand back and say, cool, we don't have to worry about this anymore. Mm. Turning to Robert Kennedy. Yeah. This one is, it seems on the surface straightforward, Sir, Sir Han, Sir Han, because this, this time it's done with a pistol. Yeah. A classic assassination technique. The classic smoking gun. We have a smoking gun finally. Right. He, with he, he points, and, he and, shoots. And the John Kennedy case. What's that? Oh, he said, he points, he shoots, he's there, and a that's crowded, it. A case closed. Kitchen pantry, yep. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. But there's not so scene, much, so. and and like I said, he confesses to it. Um, you know, we can we can talk about that confession or you know his his guilty plea uh, later. But yeah, so he's caught at the scene, gun in hand, smoking gun, open and shut. Right. Well, what makes Robert Kennedy's uh, the Robert Kennedy case so much different than even the Warren Commission in the case of John Kennedy, or well, nobody in the, in the Martin Luther King case, um, is that for all the criticism of the Warren commission, which was the, which was the official investigative body that investigated Kennedy's, uh, president Kennedy's assassination, they released a 900 page report in September of, of 64. And then in December of 64, they published 26 volumes of testimony and exhibits it gave it gave at least the the outward appearance of a very thorough investigation with robert kennedy's assassination you had the los angeles police police department investigate write a report and that report remained classified for 20 years we didn't even have the report of robert kennedy's death and the investigation into his death 
for 20 years, and they had to be sued for it. The district huh. attorney of Los Angeles had to be sued to, to, to release it. Now, I'm not talking about releasing a report with less redactions. I'm not talking about releasing a report, you know, in its entirety because you, you only released the summary of it. They released nothing. So for 20 years, you've got, you've got people like, you know, Phil Melanson and, and Greg Stone and all of these JFK researchers. Um, uh, uh, come on. His, his name escapes me now. Uh, documentarian. Two guns. Uh, he was there at the time of the assassination. Um, yeah, it'll come to me. Um, these guys had to, from the start, do their own investigation, investigative work because there was no official report to, to then, you know, to, to, to either refute or, you know, question. Um, and it was one of the ones that wasn't investigated by the FBI. It's the one, it's that one time that the, that they gave jurisdiction to the Los Angeles police department to investigate fully. Now they relied on the, on the FBI because of their laboratory because, you know, the FBI isn't just, you know, a, a bunch of G-men and spies and things like that. They do have a, a reputable uh, laboratory um, and scientific um, uh, facilities. So whenever uh, a local police department or sheriff's office or even state police need additional testing on evidence, they send it to the FBI. And that's that's what the LAPD did. Um, but just like with the John Kennedy case, you had the you had instances of destruction of evidence, um, of uh, browbeating witnesses into either recanting a story that doesn't fit with the single assassin narrative or um, completely shutting down <clears throat> those that, that could lead to um, someone other than Sirhan Sirhan. Um but the most egregious, of course, I think is, is there was actually a magic bullet in the Robert Kennedy case. Hmm. So here, here, Evel Younger is saying that the district attorney is saying, we're not going to have another Dallas. And sure as shit, <laughs> you came up with your own single bullet theory. The, 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 the single bullet theory in Robert Kennedy's case is, okay, because I didn't give the narrative yet. So Robert Kennedy is, is running in the presidential primary for the 1968 um, presidential um, election. So he's trying to get his party's nomination to be their candidate to run against the Republican candidate in the 1968 presidential election. Right. He's been com- campaigning since March, March of 68. That's when he announced his candidacy. It wasn't a year before it wasn't a year and a half before, which is common because you need time to get a campaign staff and to map things out. I mean, he, he was the campaign manager for, uh, John Kennedy, uh, in his, uh, Senate, uh, in his congressional senatorial and presidential uh, campaigns. That, that stuff takes time. But Robert Kennedy announces in March of 68 and by June, he is in a neck neck with Eugene McCarthy. And a lot so of that was because Coast. Johnson did not run again. Exactly. He didn't seek exactly. reelection. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Robert did not want to run against Johnson 
for for his own reasons. I mean, we can argue about, you know, whether that was entirely too unselfish or or for whatever reason. But once Johnson said, "Look, I'm not going to re- I'm not going to seek another term because I'm embroiled in Vietnam and it's just not good for the country," that's when Robert said, "Okay, I'm 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 in the race." So by June of '68, he's he is fully in the race, uh, neck and neck with Eugene McCarthy. Um, he loses in Oregon which is McCarthy uh, territory, but then campaigns in California, the last stop on the, on the primary campaign. And he just blows them all over. I mean, he just impresses everywhere he goes. And the evening that he is shot, they are at the ambassador. Well, at the ambassador hotel, because that's where the campaign uh, headquarters was. And, and waiting for the returns of California, and when it was announced that he had won California, then they gathered in the ballroom and he made an acceptance speech. Uh, then a little after 12 o'clock midnight, uh, their time, uh, he leaves because he, he wants to go to a press conference before he goes to a party. So in order to leave the ballroom, which is just absolutely crammed with people, I mean, beyond, uh, you know, the legal fire codes. That's how packed that place was. He goes in a back way down, down a corridor and into a kitchen pantry, which is where they prepare the food for the hotel. And when he is shaking hands with a line of wait staff, he's being led by a maitre d', but he's trying to shake hands with these people because he was very generous that way. Uh, Sirhan Sirhan steps out from a, from an ice stacking tray or, a, or a, a stacking tray by an ice machine and fires his revolver eight times into a crowd that is now following Robert Kennedy through the kitchen pantry. Uh, four people besides Robert Kennedy were shot. Uh, they all lived. The Robert Kennedy was shot three times, once in the head and um, succumbed to his injuries the next day. Um, so now that I said all that, I completely lost the train of thought before well, I did the, the narrative. Yes, Sirhan, um, Sirhan. Oh, the, the single bullet theory. Sorry, yeah, yeah, the single, single bullet, bullet theory. In yeah. this case, was uh, the criminologist for the LAPD claims that the bullet that struck um, Beth Evans, Elizabeth Evans, one of the people in the crowd behind Robert Kennedy, had come from Sirhan's gun, went up into the ceiling, you know, it had it had a it had a drop ceiling with with uh, you know ceiling tiles. Uh-huh. So it goes through that, hits the floor above, comes back down, strikes <laughs> um, Elizabeth in the in the middle of the forehead as she's bending down to to retrieve her lost shoe because somebody had stepped on her heel. She lost her shoe, so she's bending down to pick it up, and that's when she gets hit in the head. So the bullet had to have gone through the ceiling, hit the floor back through the ceiling onto the floor of the kitchen pantry to come upward to strike Elizabeth in the head. And of course the bullet that was removed from her head was in, was intact. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So, but much again, much like the JFK case, the same thing happened with the RFK case. You decide that Sirhan Sirhan with the smoking gun is the only assassin. He's got eight bullets to do all of the damage in the pantry any more than eight bullets. And there's another shooter. Okay. They did that with the JFK case too. 
that, okay, we've decided Oswald did it and did it with only three bullets. Right. So now we've backed ourselves in a corner, and that's when they had to come up with a magic bullet theory. The same thing with the Robert Kennedy case. Robert hit three times. Um, four other victims. That leaves one bullet that they claim was lost up in the ceiling. So a bullet, <laughs> one bullet that hits that hits Evans goes through the ceiling, comes back down. But the one that's missing, the eighth bullet, goes up into the ceiling and doesn't come down. So, um, so any evidence of of any further bullets? And there's another shooter. And of course, what happens? There's lots of evidence of of more than eight bullets. Um, the door jam, the 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 door that that Robert Kennedy had to come through to get into the kitchen pantry. It was a swing door. Think of like a like a restaurant, an in and out door for wait staff. You know, swinging doors. You go you go on one side to go in. You go on the other side to go out. Right? They're swinging doors. Well, the the door jam for those swinging doors. There are photographs that not only UPI photographers took, but also the FBI itself of bullet holes. And of course the initials of the officers that actually pulled a bullet out of one of those, um, holes. Now what happened to that bullet? Of course, we don't know because it was, it was never, uh, either booked into evidence or it was lost or stolen or, or what have you. And the door jams themselves, FBI trying to be helpful said, we're going to remove them and test them. So they removed those. They removed the ceiling panels that the bullets went through in the ceiling. And then of course those were destroyed. Right. So we have lots of evidence of more than eight shots, not only photographically um, and testimony of the people who were there and saw an officer dig a bullet out of the wood, but we also have a recording that was uh, re- recently surfaced about, I think, four or five years ago that was subjected to um, very good acoustic analysis and 14 shots can be heard on this recording. Whoa. So uh, Whoa. I don't know why Robert Kennedy's case didn't receive the same kind of attention uh, as, as John Kennedy's assassination or even Martin Luther King's assassination. I don't know why the House Select Committee on Assassinations didn't reinvestigate Robert Kennedy's assassination. I think it has to do with the fact that there was no official report to dissect and to question. Because you know what I mean? That was hidden away. It was hidden get away. To it wasn't yeah. released. So there was so there was nothing on which to base a new investigation. There was no controversy other because, than those that were being speculated, you know. Because it by, seemed like they had their man. He pleaded guilty and that was the case closed. So this, let's get into the really good stuff because Sir Hans or Han, there's been all this speculation that he was a Manchurian candidate, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's your thoughts Um, on that? Well, we talk about the, the CIA and it's, and it's, status in the world and in the 1960s, even more so, um, which is actually pretty impressive given the fact that they were a a newly created organization. I mean, you're talking about the late 1940s. This is post-World War II. The CIA was created with its charter, which they never followed. Um, And now you've got them um, 
being very interested, always having been fascinated with the idea of mind control, whether you can, whether it can be applied, if you can control someone's mind, whether that can be applied to the battlefield, whether you can apply it to restorative cognitive function, like if you have somebody who has a brain injury, um, whether whether that can be preempted by the use of drugs or hypnosis or whatever uh, they find with their with the scientists that they've <laughs> that they've come up with and used. Um, but also the idea of being able to have someone do something that they wouldn't normally be do on their own and then allow them to, to erase it, to forget about it. So the, the perfect, I guess, spy would be that spy that could be induced to do something they wouldn't do uh, voluntarily. And then allow them to erase that from their mind, which is basically evidence of them having done it. And so this was the idea of the Manchurian candidate. <clears throat> and because of Sirhan Sirhan's demeanor right after the assassination, because of his demeanor throughout the quote unquote trial, because of his demeanor in the intervening years that he's been interviewed by psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, and so forth and so on, there is the persuasive and overwhelming um, opinion that based on these these interviews and based on his his behavior and the fact that he can remember some things but not other things that he that he, that he superimposes this memory onto this which he made up whatever was going on in his mind it is of many people's opinions that he was a Manchurian candidate, that he had been hypnotized prior to the shooting, that he, that he emptied his revolver into a crowd. None of which, uh, none of those bullets ever striking Robert Kennedy, but then not being able to recall not only the shooting, but also the, the events leading up to the shooting. Um, and then, like I said, his demeanor afterwards. Yeah, he still can't. He still can't. He still can't. It. Yeah. No, he still can't. Wasn't, and, that's, and that's very strange. And that's very strange for somebody who is who is just otherwise uh, a sociopath, you know, or what we classify as a sociopath, or someone who is disturbed, or as the government claims. When I say government, I mean the LAPD. Um, that. The reason he can't remember is because of a horse riding accident that he had when he was 10. Okay. He fell and hit his head. So now he's, he's screwed up forever. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Well, isn't that the reason that Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy, you know, 20 years later is because he was in an orphanage and daddy didn't love him. And, you know, is that why they examined his pubic hairs in the Warren commission? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Or, or Jack Ruby's, mother's teeth from 1938 i mean you know that's really thorough <laughs> did it the same but yeah but yeah it's a, but it's that it's that uh, same thing of, of of classifying these assassins as loners uh bill hicks the comedian beautifully sure. pointed out about lee harvey oswald you know they called him a loner H- how are you a loner with a wife and two kids 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and with James and with James Earl Ray, he's supposed to be a loner. But you know what he did when he was in California? He escapes from prison. He's on the run. You know, he goes to Los Angeles for a few months. And you know what he does in Los Angeles? Takes dance lessons for five weeks. He goes to a bartending school and becomes a bartender. Does this sound like a loner to you? Right. Very antisocial right. behavior. Yeah. Very antisocial. Absolutely. I'm going to dance by myself and four it, drinks for one. I mean, did, come on. Did it the same psychiatrist interview Sir Han, Sir Han? After the assassination, that also he ended up interviewing Mark David Chapman after the Lennon assassination. That I don't know. I think that may be that, true. That I don't know. Yeah, it, it absolutely may be true. Um, I've just always thought if, that if was I'm rather interesting. And maybe maybe it's the guy who uh, some researchers attribute to being the person who hypnotized mm-hmm. Sirhan Sirhan, who's no longer alive. Maybe maybe I'm conflating those two but yeah um i I, i'm not sure about that i i hadn't heard that there's also this strange element in the rfk assassination of the woman with the polka dot dress yes Mm. yep kathy sue fulmer who of course you can't (laughs) she wasn't wearing a polka dot well she was but it was green with yellow polka dots and she had just had a um skiing accident so she was in a hip hip high cast on crutches. So kind of kind of hard to 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 mis misidentify her as the polka dot girl because the polka dot girl apparently with Sirhan Sirhan ran out, right? Of you know and and or she just she because Sirhan was apprehended right there. But the girl with the polka dot dress ran out and screamed, "We've shot him! We've shot him! We've shot him!" Well, guess what? She she couldn't have done that because well. She had a cast and crutches. So, uh, but the mystery of the polka dot girl, yeah, they they could never find out who that was. Um, There's been some speculation. She was, she was reported as she was reported as as having had a drink with Sirhan Sirhan. Okay. In in the hotel prior to the prior to the shooting, of course he didn't drink, but you know, and and people questioned whether or not she was. Um, she was part of maintaining his hypnosis or she was a, a, um, um, a, a figure that he could fixate on to keep him, you know, um, on an even keel. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I can't remember all of the, the details of, of the Manchurian candidate or, or what her role would have been to, to be there with him. But, um, you know. But that that was that that's one of the one that's one of the lasting um unknowns of the case is who was the girl in the polka dot dress, which yeah, which many strange. people saw and yeah, absolutely. So saw her with him and, and of course it was always it also uh Sirhan Sirhan was characterized as well shy, and that's different than being a loner, but not very outgoing or very talkative in company. Um so why would would he be talking to this beautiful girl at the bar and, you know, so forth and so on. So it's still a mystery, but I think the most important thing to, to take away from this case and why I think that it should be reopened. Um, I mean, it's look, it it's, it's 50 years past due to yeah. be, to be investigated fully. Um, but, um, 
it's the fact that that Sirhan Sirhan could not have killed Robert Kennedy. He he fired his weapon. He emptied those eight bullets into the crowd. He did shoot those four people, for which he has served his prison time uh, at least threefold. Because attempted murder is different than obviously murder, and since he's been in prison for fifty years, you know, you, you don't you don't put somebody in prison for fifty years for attempted murder. But he, he physically could not have killed Robert Kennedy because of the wounds on on Kennedy's body and the proximity of the shooter to Robert Kennedy. When you have, well, I talked about this earlier about John Kennedy's autopsy and Harold Weisberg characterizing it as fit for a, you know, fit for a Bowery bum. Um, Robert Kennedy's was completely opposite. Uh, Thomas Noguchi, who is the uh, medical examiner for Los Angeles County, his autopsy report is 60 pages long. He, he spoke of scraping Robert Kennedy's fingernails and doing a microscopic examination of whatever was underneath it. Not because he suspected anything like cocaine or, you know, somebody else's blood. It was simply because he wanted to be that thorough. Okay. He was not going to let anything impugn his work. Or, or this autopsy. So it was incredibly thorough. Um, the most moving part of the autopsy report when you read it is that, you know, medical examiners see a lot of vile shit. They see, they see unspeakable things and they still have to do their job. You know, they have to desensitize themselves. But every now and then you have a, you have a medical examiner who um, is tweaked by conscience and has to alter what he or she does just to get through it. Thomas Noguchi had to put a towel over Robert Kennedy's face as he mm. did the autopsy mm. because he was that, he was that emotionally, you know, affected by the person that he now had to, he had to examine. Um, now the, the, the strange thing, let's jump back over to the King case. The strange thing is that, um, Jerry Francisco, who was the, uh, Shelby County, medical examiner who did King's autopsy. He said that he did not track the wound through King's jaw and neck because he didn't want to further, uh, destroy King's body. Like sensitivity prevented him from doing his job correctly. Right. So because he didn't examine the wound and track the wound, uh, a, a specific, or a, or a um, exact measurement couldn't be made of the angle through through King's body, which is obviously necessary to find out where the shot came from. So because he didn't do his job, simply because he didn't want to further mutilate his body, which I think is what an autopsy is. Have you guys ever been to an autopsy? No. no I have. The pleasure. It, is, it is it is a pretty thorough mutilation of a body. I mean, I'm not yeah. talking about, you know, chainsaw, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, <laughs> it's neat, but it's, it's a mutilation. It's a, it's a, it's a taking apart of, of a human body. So for him to say that he didn't track a bullet wound because he didn't want to further deform King's body is, is ridiculous. But Noguchi's was, was a completely different thing where he was, you know, like, like a medical examiner who has to do an autopsy on a child. You can you can imagine yeah. why that's so emotionally charged and why they might have to 
make some adjustments. Uh, adjustments, but um, but it was Thomas Noguchi and his thoroughness of that autopsy that established that the gun that uh, that fired the bullets into uh, Robert Kennedy's body was only well anywhere from two to six inches for the head, and then six to six inches to a foot on the rest of his body. There was actual soot and, and gunpowder residue embedded into, uh, Robert Kennedy's scalp behind his ear. So the gun was almost near contact and Sirhan Sirhan was never that close to Robert Kennedy. And he was never behind him either. Mm. That's the other thing is that all of the bullets to Robert Kennedy was from, was from behind. Wow. And a steep upward trajectory. Not, not, uh, you know, a horizontal trajectory, um, like the other victims, um, experienced, you know, you've got, you've got a leg wound, you've got a belly wound, right? Because, because Sirhan Sirhan was being pinned against a table as he continued to fire. So the table was waist high. So the gun is pinned onto a table and he's still shooting again on a horizontal, Right. But before he was pinned to the table, he simply reached out his arm. Well, he was only five six, so he's he he you know he's not very tall. So so he reaches his hand out with the gun, and after the second shot is is then pinned to the table where he fires the rest of the bullets. Um, but Robert Kennedy was never had his back turned to him and was never closer than two to three feet, not inches. So there was there had to have been a gunman behind Robert Kennedy, close and armed. Somebody to make sure that was. it got done. Absolutely, and there was. His name was Thane Eugene Caesar. He was a rent a thug cop that was hired by the hotel to provide security, and he was armed. And guess where he was? Behind him. He was behind Robert Kennedy. Um, the famous photograph. Uh, well, there, there's lots of famous photographs, Bill Epridge, but Boris Yoro, um, you'll know this, this picture, a lot of people have seen it of Robert Kennedy is right after he was shot, sprawled on the, uh, pantry floor. And next to him is, is a busboy is kneeling next to him, cradling his head. Mm-hmm. But if you look on that and look on that photograph to the right of Robert Kennedy on the ground is a clip on tie. That was the tie that Fane Eugene Caesar was wearing at the time of the shooting. So if you imagine Fane Eugene Caesar behind Robert Kennedy, putting his gun right up against him to muffle the sound, shooting him three times and everyone falling backwards, I think Robert Kennedy reached around, grabbed his tie, and pulled it off of him. Mm. So. So who did this guy, I mean... What it would be his connection to? Well, again, we we don't know because yeah. he was not interviewed. Now, uh, Dan Moldea, wow. who is an investigative journalist, did a, a wonderful piece on the Robert Kennedy assassination for Regardie's magazine in 1987, pointing out all of these inconsistencies, pointing out the fact that the um, LAPD had released the report, looking at the ballistic evidence, you know, the photographs of the bullet holes in the pantry and the missing you know, uh, ceiling tiles and the 2,400 case photographs that were burned in a hospital incinerator. He looked at all of this and actually identified 
sustain Eugene Caesar as the shooter. But leap forward uh, a few years, and now he writes a book called The Killing of Robert Kennedy, where he befriends Thane Eugene Caesar, and in fact becomes his ipso facto agent, um, and says he didn't do it. I, I don't know. I don't know what turned Dan Moldea, but it, it, a very, very strange, um, you know. Yeah, I have heard about that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. With the same forces, but, you but, think? But Thane Eugene Caesar has never been questioned to that extent. He has not been, um, you know, hmm. the 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 gun that that he owned at the time that he claimed he owned at the time. He said he sold to a private uh, owner. Yeah. So we can't test the gun that he had the night of the uh, uh, of the shooting, um, and he's so he's never been properly deposed hmm. because again, this has not been investigated. It has not had the investigative body has not had the power of subpoena and um, uh, like the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller does right now. That's what we need for all of these cases is a special prosecutor, special investigator Yeah. that, that says, that says, look, we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to question Thane Eugene Caesar extensively. Uh, we're going to exhume president Kennedy's body. We are going to, you know, uh, Actually, exhumed John Conley too because he still has metal in his wrist. Remember, right? Uh, you had researchers who tried to prevent uh, his wife Nellie Conley from from putting him in the ground until that metal could be re- removed from his uh, wrist. But of course, she didn't let that happen. So he was buried with evidence, you know, still in him. But unless you have investigations that are willing to do that, unless you have investigations that are willing to to open up all of the files. Uh, including, yes, the distasteful autopsy photographs as well. But unless we can establish that, yes, these are the autopsy photographs that were taken that night, and these th- that what is depicted in these photographs was actually John Kennedy and the wounds that he had received in Dallas as opposed to, you know, between Dallas and, and Washington, until we do that, that all of this is, like I said, speculation. And, and for those who... Um, criticize people like myself and you and, and, you know, um, your entourage over there. Um, the reason that we, that we're criticized for looking into this and suggesting that it may not have happened the way the government says is because the government had its chance to do it right. And they blew it. Right. Okay. I, I look, I'm, I'm, I, I am not impressed that's that, that 50, 55 years later, some Yahoo in the, in the back, in the Northern country of, of Michigan can take a man, Carcano rifle and train himself to fire off three shots in under six seconds. It doesn't impress me because if you work on something long enough, of course, you're going to be able to disprove it, or you're going to be able to, to do whatever you set out to do. But in back in 64, when you had FBI marksmen, when you had the opportunity to test the, the actual rifle and the actual bullets, and you couldn't duplicate it, you couldn't prove your case then, mm-hmm. you, you blew that opportunity. You know what I mean? Now, that's not the case with, with, with advances in technology. If we want to compare the bullet fragments that came out of King's body with the bullets that were found supposedly in Ray's belongings, that I get. That you can do. 
okay, we didn't have the technology back then, but we have the technology now. But as far as things like marksmanship, um, adrenaline, um, whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald or even James Earl Ray had the expertise to do what they, what the government said they did. I mean, we talked about Oswald and the fact that the only time the government could put a rifle in Lee Harvey Oswald's hands was four years before the assassination. And when I say that, I don't mean the backyard photographs. I mean, a, a good weapon where he had been trained on a weapon and had fired the weapon just because he's posing in his backyard with a weapon that he ordered through the mail doesn't mean that he fired it. He didn't. He wasn't practicing. So the only time that the government could have him somewhat efficient with a rifle is four years prior to the assassination. And as any marksman will tell you, as any hunter will tell you that if you go four years in between shooting a gun, you're not going to, you're not going to shoot many deer that way. It's the same thing with James Earl Ray. He was in, you know, he was in the Navy for what, two years. Uh, I think it was two years, a little over two years and he got extensive rifle training, right? Then, but you're telling me that, that, that not having even a weapon in your hand or practicing that you're going to take one bullet into the bathroom with you loaded into the rifle. And then with, with really good accuracy, yeah, you know, kill another human being. That's, I mean, you know, Oswald needed four <laughs> Ray only needed one. I mean, that's, 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 that's really, that's confidence. That's, you know, so this stuff is so crazy. I tell you, it, it just, it, it just, is it, more and more. You look at it, the more just the government stuff falls apart is Sir has got a question for you. Oh, uh, he was wanting to ask you earlier. Um, well, it just seems like I wanted to comment. It seems like in both, uh, King and I guess Kennedy's, both of the Kennedy's and probably X too, as uh, because of what X was doing before he got assassinated, it seems like the the real red line was them starting to um, potentially get in the way of foreign policy objectives. That seems like what really um, might have been a catalyst. It seems like they 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 were of course watching them and you know marshalling all kinds of things against them, but that was really the red line that set in motion their eventual assassinations. It seems like. No, that's 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 an excellent observation, an excellent question, and I think that people people don't realize is that with all of those assassinations that you mentioned, uh, even Malcolm X, which you know people don't associate with with the two Kennedys and King, as far as uh, either either national consciousness or importance, um, you're absolutely right. It, it and and Fred Hampton too. You got to throw Fred Hampton in there. Why was Fred Hampton killed at 21? Because they were going to let you know him get to Malcolm's ripe old age of, you know, 39. Um, Malcolm was, what his red line was, was actually taking the plight of black America to the United Nations. Right. He wanted not to think uh, of civil rights, like, like, like micro civil rights. He wanted macro human rights. That is, if other countries can be brought before the UN and sanctions can be imposed on countries that do not treat their own citizens humanely, then why couldn't we do that with the United States? The United States that has been um, guilty of genocide 
not only of Native Americans, but also the enslavement and, and, and subjugation of an entire black population. Why can't we bring a petition before the United Nations and hold the United States accountable for their criminal activities? That, that was incredibly powerful. And, and do you really think the United States would have stood for that? You know, um, as far as John Kennedy is concerned, yeah, you, you asked the question, well, who was he pissing off? It wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. That's for damn sure. But he was pissing off a lot of other people. And that has to include the Central Intelligence Agency, which in its, in its young, um, you know, years and trying to establish itself as a, as a, as a um, formidable intelligence agency, um, really bungled the, the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. And uh, John Kennedy publicly took responsibility for it, but privately vowed to smash the CIA uh, into a thousand pieces and scatter them to the wind. He wanted to completely redo the intelligence uh, community of the United States, which of course is what Eisenhower, prior to Kennedy taking office, warned us against, warned us against the unwarranted acquisition of power by the industrial, the, the military industrial complex. So Kennedy wanted to please people as he took office, you know, he's young. I think he's having a little doubt himself about his ability to have this, this immense office. And so he listens to his generals. He listens to his intelligence advisors and then the Bay of Pigs happens. And it was an incredible embarrassment that publicly he said, look, the buck stops here. I'm the president. I okayed this. I fucked up. So I'm sorry. But behind doors, he fires the top two heads of the CIA the director that he fired, Alan Dulles, then appears on the very commission that is investigating his assassination two years later. I mean, talk about a you know conflict right. of interest, but right. <clears throat> <laughs> but that's the biggest that's the biggest toe he stepped on. And you're talking about foreign policy. Well, what was the CIA embroiled in most besides stemming communism in Cuba? It was stemming communism in Vietnam. Yep. Vietnam was a big thing. Oh, yeah. And Kennedy even suggesting that we let South Vietnam deal with itself, you know, to have all to have our troops come back home by Christmas of 65 was infuriating to the to the hawks that surrounded him, including, of course, the intelligence agencies. So so that that was incredibly dangerous. And then we talked about. Then we talked about. um Martin Luther King and his uh, opposition to Vietnam and given his status in the United States at the time, his, his huge popularity, I think that he would have, you know, uh, one of the things that they talked about uh, in the, um, uh, the American experience PBS special that was just aired, we talked about this earlier was what would have happened had King lived, you know, would he have been a, a Rhodes Scholar, would he have been, I mean, look what he accomplished in a, in a very short period of time. Had he lived, he would have accomplished a lot more. Maybe he would have been an ambassador to a country. Well, think about that. Think about him and the movement that he was leading and how immense it was, how respected he was, not just in our country, but around the world, enough to get him a Nobel Peace Prize, saying, we've got to get out of Vietnam, saying, we've got to take care of the poor people of the world. I mean, uh, in a modern day Gandhi. And yeah, that was absolutely antithetical to what our foreign policy was at that time. And then, of course, Robert Kennedy. 
two months later, Robert Kennedy was, uh, not only was he a much better politician and not politician statesman as, uh, than his brother, but he was a surrogate. Now, now that King was dead, um, a lot of people that, that placed all their hope on King now placed it on, um, Robert. And so he was able to, to, uh, galvanize the young movement, the black movement, the Latino movement, um, all the movements that were seemingly disconnected and, you know, frantic Robert Kennedy was act absolutely bringing together and, and responding to, and that made him incredibly dangerous. So, so, so that, that answers your question as far as the, the thread that goes through the red line yeah. of, of uh, foreign policy um, expectations by our government. And then of course, these young, um, unflappable um, leaders that, that, that stood in the way of that. Well, you know, if we're talking about motive, I've always thought that the establishment really felt like it was losing control. So we needed yeah. to get rid of these people. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The, the institutions that I was talking about, the institutional respect, the institutional, the, the, oh, well, it must be true because the FBI said it was true. Uh, that was waning. I mean, certainly not to the extent that it, that it would in the wake of, of Watergate. I mean, that, that just completely killed it. However, you, you do have um, uh, the political assassinations that happened in the 60s. And then, of course, like I said, Kent State, when, when our country saw that we would send our troops onto college campuses and kill 18-year-olds because they were protesting a war, they were losing traction. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, nobody went to jail. You know, nobody was indicted for the murder of these four uh, college students. But it was horrifying. Just like, just like the correspondence, the Vietnam correspondence, and the advent of leaving your television on to see the horrors of Vietnam. You watch body bags and caskets come home. That really affected people seeing that. And then of course, uh, a few years earlier when you, you saw the confrontations between, uh, Southerners and, um, and freedom fighters, uh, in the South where hoses are turned on people and clothes are being ripped from their bodies and dogs are tearing the flesh off of children that made, you know, the citizenry say, okay, wait, what, what the hell is our government doing? You know, for us, what what are they doing for us? So I th I think that it was weakening their 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 institutional prowess was was weakening. And, um, and then a segue to segue into the aftermath of all these assassinations of right um, these political movements dissolving. I know we didn't talk about the Panthers much, uh, but I've listened to some programs where you're talking about them before. Uh, and the, right. kind of this popular narrative with a lot of the African-American community uh, to this day is that after you have the uh, the end of the Panthers pretty much, which people uh, attribute to most of that rank and file then becoming what would become those first uh, Crip and Blood gang members. 
and the yeah. the drugs being uh, funneled into the inner cities, and this new Absolutely. this new rugged individualism replacing this kind of socialistic revolutionary uh, culture that existed before. Do you think? Right. And it and it's you know the narrative with a lot of African American community is that this is some kind of you know planned out master plan. Um, do you? What do you think about that kind of narrative? Do you think that that the the drugs and and were uh, I know there's there there is some documentation with some of the police departments and some of the feds in like I know New York in particular in places, but do you think there was right, an right. organized effort to to do that? Look, <clears throat> I, it's not something that I have studied in extensively. Um, I know other people have, like you said, you've seen, you've seen documents, or at least you've, you've read books or read articles that, that address this. Um, but knowing what I know about our intelligence agencies, knowing what I know about what they will do, the lengths they will go to for their very own survival. And if you have a politically conscious public, then you're not going to be able to get away with a whole lot that you want to get away with. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, if everyone yeah. is Noam Chomsky, we can't have wars all over the fucking globe. You know what I mean? <laughs> so how do we prevent people from becoming Noam Chomsky's? Well, you put them in slums, you put them in ghettos, and you call them ghettos, right? Um, you... You... Uh, you make higher education, harder and harder to get to. And then of course you, you chain people to uh, a dependency, a dependency on either, um, like you said, drugs or violence, or, um, you won't be able to get anywhere on your own. You have no identity on your own. So the only way you're going to actually feel like you belong to something or something that's worthy is by becoming a member of a gang. So, it is completely within the realm of possibility that a very strategic um, plan of action includes things like allowing drugs to come in uh, to to cities, um, not not enforcing the law quite as strenuously uh, to keep people docile, to keep them stupid, to keep them... Uh, like I said, um, dependent on something other than <clears throat> empathy or progress or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I I absolutely think that it, that that it's that is possible. Well, thank thanks. That it's likely. How's that? How's that? Absolutely. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, thank you so, um, I, so I mean, much. Look, our criticism now. Back back in the eighties, I'm sorry, just to, to finish off the thought yeah, like sure. this. Back in the eighties when it was um when it was asserted that, that cocaine was being allowed to just infiltrate inner cities, right? Um around the same time that it was also uh suggested that, that AIDS, which which was probably a laboratory created virus was created for the exact same reason. Um, but today's, um, today's version of that would be the pharmaceutical companies. How much criticism has been leveled against the pharmaceutical companies 
for not only their huge profits, but making people dependent on drugs Yeah, to either alter their, their mood, their consciousness, their will to live. I mean, you know, and that kind of thing. So now we have the opi- opioid crisis as well, but that started with, you know, all of the criticisms lay, being laid against uh, big pharma and, uh, and its control of what people feel they need. Mm-hmm. Right. So do we feel that we need activism like we did back in the 1960s? Well, no, even though we are still just as divided, but with the advent uh, of uh of a politician, if you can call him that, like Trump, you absolutely, I think, are going to find uh, remnants of the 1960s, and you already have seen it. Um, and and even the the kind of casualties that take place um, when police go up against the citizenry. We've seen that too. Yep. We've seen we've seen how um, what the the very the very circumstances that that gave birth to an organization like the Black Panther Party back in the 1960s, those elements are still with us today, just as strong. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it and hasn't that's, gone away. It's not gone away. In yeah. fact, it's, it's coming back. It's coming back with a vengeance. So <laughs> it was a great, I can't remember who I just heard talking about, oh, uh, um, Mulaney, uh, the, the comedian. What's his first name? John. John, John Mulaney. His, his, his latest net, Netflix, Netflix special, he was talking about and we have Nazis again. Where the <laughs> hell did that come from? You know what I mean? I mean, the last reference of an of, of organized Nazis that I saw was the Blues Brothers back in 1980 <laughs> when he said, you know, Illinois Nazis, I hate Illinois Nazis. And then they drive them off the bridge. I mean, wh- why the hell are we reverting back? We're, we're recessing. We're not progressing. You know, yeah. why is that? Why is that? And and all of these social ills and all of these like like you said all of this recognition and, and understanding of of what's happening behind the scenes and with corporations and governments and so forth and so on, people are slowly waking up from that stupor and hopefully uh, with shows like yours and you know research that's being done and discussed and and uh, issues that are being discussed uh, on a regular basis, hopefully that will spark something. Hopefully that will generate um a movement to to break some of these shackles so we can always hope let's hope so let's definitely hope so let's hope nobody uh, uh, but sometimes i fear in the in the conspiracy community that they are yeah. really focused on the wrong things well well absolutely i why why you are even suggesting that the the mass murder of school children is a hoax is beyond me um you know right that, that that's not where you that's not where you put your doubt of right things, but. well and, that, and that's what i was gonna say we have to be really careful because there's um there's a line somewhere it's a big gray area but um discord you know and uh disinformation and stuff is is used as a, a platform to in, increase Absolutely. power in a lot of ways and we have to be careful that we're trying to help you know help expose truth and spread awareness and spread um just enough doubt that people question everything but not right right but but we're, we're not promoting this um 
you know, dis- disinformation kind of campaign that is also dividing us at the same time. And it's, it's a tricky line. Oh, absolutely. And, and look, there have been one of the reasons why I, I became a little disinfected with the JFK um, community is because of all the backstabbing, because of all of the, the snarky, you know, inter, uh, you know, inner community, uh, either accusations or, or name calling or, or even out, outright bullying. Look, aren't we supposed to be a community? Aren't we supposed to do this together? If you've got information, share it. If this information sucks, say it, you know, let's, let's, let's have it out and let's, but let's be productive about it because the divide and conquer, uh, method, which again, I, I, I said before that, that, that Hoover loved to use, um, you know, that there's already consternation. If you turn up, if you turn up the heat even more, um, which I fear is, is where we are right now. So there's already distrust. There's already, you know, the divisions of the camps of right and left and conservative and and liberal and Democrat Republican and so forth and so on. Uh, but now it's been ratcheted up because of this, you know, this lame ass who's who's in the white house, um, (laughs) That that we we can't even see facts. We can't even recognize facts or or uh, acknowledge that they exist. You know what I mean? Right. So so especially on the conspiracy or even paranormal or or uh, what subcultures? I don't know. Um, yeah, we have to do it right, and we have to do it intelligently and reasonably. And but but of course, um, the most important is. Um, consistently, we've got to be consistent with, with how we go about it and how we, how we criticize and how we actually try to approach the truth. Um, yeah. And go from there. Cause yeah, we can't, we cannot question everything. You know, <laughs> Adam, is your name really Adam? I want to see your birth certificate. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in Kenya. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are we, are we, are we really on the air in the United States or are we broadcasting in some, you know, Inter, some other galaxy. It's a Russian no, troll mean, factory. Yeah. Well, yeah. Am I talking to Putin right now? I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> you never know. You, you could be. You know. <laughs> well, Craig, this has been very enlightening. Uh, we've we, this has been a marathon too. We've almost we're almost gone like two hours here. So. Well, it's the wonders of editing. You can certainly edit this down to. <laughs> I don't think we need to. No, no, it's going to be straight. Because it would be some, it would be some hardcore listeners that want to hear me talk for two hours. So I do. Um, I do. So, before we let so you go, you. though, I want to reiterate something, a sort of a, a thematic thing that you mentioned towards the beginning when you were talking about this, uh, the new documentary. <clears throat> um, ju- just basically that if if you have a respect for these people, you have to also. Um, respect the fact that uh, their their deaths might not have been what you're being told. It might not have you know been completely kind of in vain, random sort of circumstantial things. And right, if, right. if you respect who they are, you've got to look a little bit more into to how that all went down because that's a big part of who they are and their legacy and what they could potentially leave us with. So. Well, yeah, and what and what they they gave their life for. Exactly, I mean, they laid yeah. down their life for this stuff. Because if they were just you know you and me, they'd still be alive. But they put themselves out there, and they and they put everything that they had on the line for the betterment of human beings from the of of the human race. And and I think about that as you just said that. I think about uh, you know the arguments that that we can't talk about gun control after 
after a tragedy because you know you don't you don't uh, belittle or besmirch the 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 memories of the people the victims by demand by politicizing it right like like as if demanding answers transparency um the 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 wheels of justice turning as if that is somehow demeaning as if that is somehow uh you know counterintuitive or uh would somehow you know desecrate their memories are you kidding me every one of those victims of 911 well, okay, it's a little lofty, lofty to say that, but I'm saying I would say that a vast majority of certainly their families feel that their deaths should not have been in vain. Okay, we got bones still being picked off of the, the roofs in downtown Manhattan. All right, these are people that that gave their lives for for they didn't even know why. But the the worst thing that we can do for their memories is to shut up about it. Is to just say, oh, really? Buildings can collapse on <laughs> on each other just from fire. Okay, yeah, that's that's fine. That sounds good. Agreed. Yeah, we, we need to do so, a show so about right, that you're absolutely, too. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, nine eleven yeah. is next, right? Well, yeah, it, it, it should be. I've always told my I've always told my daughters that that that, that is their generation's JFK assassination. It absolutely is. It absolutely so, is. Yep. Well, I'll so, remember well, where we right. were when that happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much for your generosity, and thank you so much to your listeners for the for the same thing. Hey, thank you um, so much. Always, always, uh, pl- always a pleasure to speak to you. Where can people find you on the on the online, Craig? Well, I, I don't really have any, uh, access to any writings or anything like that. Um, I really should do that, but I've just either been intimidated by technology or just too lazy to do it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I'm on Facebook. That's that's about as public as I yeah. get. Well, tell so, everyone about that uh, schematic map that you got. Well, the 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 because it's been said that the JFK assassination has garnered what twenty five hundred books. The last thing I wanted to do was to write yet another book. So my contribution to the JFK case was to create a database of all of the witnesses to his assassination. So I with an architect friend of mine did a plot of Dealey Plaza. It's like a 24 by 36 map of Dealey Plaza where, where Kennedy was assassinated. And I plotted all of the witnesses that I could find having gone through all the FBI, the Dallas police, the Dallas sheriffs, um, you know, state department documents. I found as many witnesses as I could. I plotted them where they were at the time of the shots and then published like a book that goes along with that map that gives more detail than I could put on a map. Cause the last thing I wanted to do was to, was to muddle a map, you know, I mean, right. And just make it so busy. And so, you know, uh, so here's a nice clean map. that just shows you where everyone is. But if you want to know the particulars about that person, then you need to look into the, 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 the book that goes along with it. So, the, so that's my schematic and, and book that of JFK assassination witnesses. Cool. Yeah. We, we want to, and that, want- and that, and and that you can, I do, I forgot that I have a WordPress. So I think, if I remember correctly, it's craigciccone.wordpress.com. We want to put and that map in the studio. Yeah, totally. Oh, absolutely. I'll send you one. Oh, awesome. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. I'll send you the, I'll send you the address. Yeah, we awesome. want that. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank Actually, you, Craig, yeah, you so know, much. I, I, I am, I'm a, I'm a substitute teacher and, and one of the permanent teachers at the school where I teach. Uh, he's a history teacher and, and he was nice enough to, to, 
buy one of my schematics, laminate it, and put oh, it in nice. his classroom. So that, nice. that's the whole point of, of doing this. So I'll be happy to do it. I'll be proud to to have my work. Nice. Hang cool. in your man cave. <laughs> 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 well, stay on the live force, Craig. We're going to close out this section. And, guys, uh, it's been a marathon, so we're going to come back, uh, albeit a little bit briefly, on Conspiracy Normal. So I, I, I try not to bring up local issues too much because we, most of our listenership is not local, yes. you know, but yes. Nashville has a serious, serious transportation problem. Uh, this morning, there was an accident on the freeway near us, which meant everyone was routed to my little side road that I was taking. It wasn't just an accident. There was a dead body yeah. on the inter- on yeah. Interstate 40. Yeah. There was a, yeah. So <laughs> the, the entire interstate was shut down and everyone got routed to my route. They and, had to do an investigation. Yeah. So anyway, I got stuck in traffic for two and a half hours today on the way to work. But the silver lining is I got to listen to five episodes of one of my favorite podcasts, which is the 13 o'clock podcast. Oh, nice. With Tom and Jenny. Five episodes? Well, it, I was doing, I, I'm, I'm backtracking on their, their movie reviews because they just recently oh, okay, like, okay, re- okay. released all okay. those. I got those so, are like 20 minutes long. Yeah. So, 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 okay. I, so I caught up on all of all those, right. which are awesome. Yeah. And if you're listening, if you like podcasts and you, you like our show, go check out their show because it is great. Um, and yeah, and in a couple of episodes, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna be they're here gonna be us. back on. So, mm-hmm. nice segue, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, we need. I, need, I was like, I need to get them back on because they've had a bunch of episodes since we talked to them back in August, and we can also talk mo- uh, movies too. Yeah, we can. Like, that was the show that Rob and I listened to mostly all the way, pretty much all the way to Roswell and then back again. Well, yeah. it's 13 o'clock podcast. Yep. Starting with uh, the necrophilia episode. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> Tom, and that's the thing, that they're, the way they play off each other is so great. Like, you know, J- Jenny is so, like, fact-based and... um Tom will take these tangents all the time and just run with them. And it's just, right. You I can, love it. You can always hear like the gears like grinding in his head, like as he's analyzing stuff. Well, interesting thing. Um, they did an episode about the East area rapist. Mm-hmm. Remember? And that guy was actually caught. Yeah. Last week. Yep. Uh, and, California. In California, yeah. Um, the last murder that the he had committed, officer, yeah, he was a police officer. Mm-hmm. The last murder that he committed was in 1986, and before that, I believe that he had like this reign of terror from like 74 to like 81 or something like that. But all throughout the 70s, and he was considered the original Night Stalker. Not to be confused with Richard Ramirez, who became right. the not the Night Stalker, but this was was the original. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody had any clue. But there was specul like Joe was saying, there was speculation that the guy had to be a policeman. And took thirty two years. Yeah, and he was at some point, right? 
Yeah, he well, yeah. he had been a policeman at some point because people were saying he, and they even talked about that in that episode, uh, Tom and Jenny in 13 o'clock. They talked about that he had to have been someone that knew the area, someone mm-hmm. that was there most of the time and had an observance of these people. So he's probably a cop sitting in his car in that area watching people. Yep, this case. I'm and they, they had some kind of, I can't remember what it was, but there was something about how they caught him that had to do with a DNA profile that I guess had been one of those, like, I don't know, was it a 23andMe? Yeah, yeah. So you, so they, you, so they you used know a, more. A, yeah, they used a, a family member's use DNA from them using Ancestry.com. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. To confirm oh. it was him. Oh, okay. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah, a database. There's already been a few warrants on uh-huh. Ancestry.com and National Geographic, I think. And really, yeah, it's very unfortunate because wow. I really want to do it. And <laughs> my sister actually already bought me the kit and everything. And I'm just what like, are you trying to say? It's unfortunate Phil. unless no, you're no, a serial no, killer. No, they might catch me. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I just mean like or if any or your relative is <laughs> if, if any relative of mine ever does anything bad, it's gonna be I'm gonna be like the snitch, you know? Oh, so. okay, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. All right, yeah. Sorry, Uncle Walter. Sorry, that, sorry you got caught for all those for all those rapes that you did back in the day. Good lord! But that is kind of interesting that people that there's been some kind of criticism about the whole twenty three and Me stuff and the Ancestry dot com. Yeah, yeah. That they're actually building a database. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the more of the conspiratorial side. Yeah, of. but that's that's how things are going to go. We're, there's no avoiding that. You know, it's actually a new Our phones are going to listen to everything we say. <laughs> Facebook is going to like blast ads at you for what you talk about. Like, yeah, but DNA sampling is a little, 23andMe is going to, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's really invasive. It is, it is, but anything you do online is going to be profiled. Like, it's all I'm saying. Like, there, there's no avoiding that. And it's, it's just part of our culture. Yeah, it's moving all to artificial intelligence. Like they want everything to be, every everything to be on on record, you know, and to be analyzed. And they yeah. actually can predict the future with some of this stuff. Oh yeah, there's. I mean, there there yeah, there's totally like Silicon Valley guys that are building mega supercomputers that we can't even imagine that are gonna. You know, the predictive abilities are ridiculous. Elon Musk is going to take over the world. I'm telling you. Elon Musk is one of the good guys over oh, there. Oh, okay. the, this is the guys we don't know about sure. that we need to worry about over there. He's your guy. He is, he is my guy. I have faith in that guy. He's your evil, evil <laughs> robot overlord. That, that, that's the transit system I want. He's building. I, I want to cross the country. That's what I'm saying. I, I, will, you know? I will probably serve Elon Musk's robot overlords. <laughs> Bring you it. heard it here, folks. <laughs> you heard it here. These uh, do not reflect. <laughs> which, by the way, what Joe is talking about, the transit system, um, that's another local Nashville thing. Uh, the Apparently, today, May 1st, they voted on... I did not vote because I was confused about what to even vote for. <laughs> but the, I live the, in the transit... Si- yeah, but. you live outside of the county. So you can't vote. You can vote. I think they all they were voting on was just this referendum, right, on the transit system. Well, the way I understand it, they, they they wanted to build a tunnel because every hip city needs to have a tunnel, and it was going to only oh, affect Lord. downtown where everybody either rents a bike or walks or takes Uber. 
Yeah. And the, all the traffic issues that we have are people that commute to town to work every right. day and back. And it didn't even address that. Right. And we have, a, we have a transit train. It's not much of anything, but we do have one. No, it's been a failing system since it started. It can't support. Yeah. If everybody decided to jump on that, it would be so overloaded and just... Have you been on it? It is actually full every day. The X-Star? Right. Yeah. 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 No. So I think people are using it, but they need like seven more trains. Right. Yeah. yeah agreed. But. Agreed. I mean, this... Nashville is growing and it's growing exponentially still. Uh-huh. And people are moving here every day. The entertainment's but out of control. Too. They don't want to do... I mean, even Atlanta has a better transit system, and Atlanta's is not the best. But what Nashville government was proposing was wasn't even going to go past a little area we call Briley Parkway that pretty much sort of like circles the city. Right. So in the outer parts of the county, like where we are in Nashville, we're east of Nashville, it wasn't even really going to come out here. And so it's not really going to benefit anybody in most in the greater county area of Davidson County it would just benefit people inside that loop and but people's property values were or property taxes were going to go sky high if this thing was going to be built <laughs> right. yeah so the so people, people who weren't happy it about have it. to pay for it exactly yeah the people that are still having to drive into work yeah every day nothing's going to change for them but if you own a home in Metro Davidson, Nashville, you're not going to... Sales tax was going to go up, too. Yep. So people people were definitely not happy about it. So they, they really needed to come up with a better comprehensive plan, and they just didn't. In my, you know, that's kind of in my opinion. What do you think, Zerfiel? Because you live a little closer in. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible. We need something, but... Um, like horses? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, More bicycle we need, paths. We need something, but uh, as far as the funding and the, the way they wanted to get the revenue, it just seemed like it was kind of putting it all on the the people at the bottom, and I really didn't think that was right, especially with how much growth, how much people are yeah. profiting from the growth of Nashville, and they want us to pay for it at the grocery store and yeah. and a- people's property and. But whatever, I don't know. I didn't get, I didn't get too, uh, too involved. Um, yeah, because yeah. you work in construction, and there's more and more construction every day. Yeah, I mean, we've got to figure something out. But uh, but also at the same time, it's like this is just push. Like, oh, this is the last chance to even talk about or do anything. And this is, you know, and it's like, come on, we, you know, we we don't have a lot of time. We have a major problem right now, but that. This doesn't mean we can't come up with something in the next year, in the next two years. And, you know, it's still something has to be done. Right. It will be done. Right. It's got to be a way to include, because it's not just. It felt rushed. But we, we have a, you know, I mean, it's really, really pro business, pro development. And even though the political makeup is seemingly liberal, um, you know, we, we're still Tennessee and. You know, they have a hard time getting getting revenue and proposing revenue, especially on big business. And, you know, it's it's hard for them to come up with the money to do things yeah. because we're not a place like, you know, uh, an Atlanta or uh, Los Angeles or New York, you know. 
I was thinking a cool thing they haven't even looked at is the river system. Put some some barges down there and tell people to get on the river and go right into downtown. It would be so fun and you know where is that? They used to have that right in the forties, right? Called Stewart's know. Ferry and stuff, right? But they don't they don't cart people around on the boat anymore. Um, I don't know. I was thinking that would be fun. Maybe that was considered too slow. I don't know. Uh, that's well, a possibility. Yeah, see, that's the problem. It's, it's another issue that I don't have an answer for, but I don't think that, that what they proposed was an answer either. <laughs> so, right, yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. It just seemed really, really half-assed. All I know rushed. is that the, yeah, all the people that are moving yep. to Nashville and, and buying $400,000 condos are not going to work my job. So there's got to be <laughs> yeah. got to be a way for me to get there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it, you know what it does, though? It's not a bad thing. It, it makes the city spread out more. You're not going to put a big... Ma- you're not going to... S- you possibly, if you are an employer, you wouldn't put um, your center of business in the middle of the city because it's too hard to get there. So then you spread out. You know, you put a big building on the outskirts of the city, you know, then create a whole new center. So I don't think... I don't think our traffic problem is necessarily... A bad thing it just shows that we're a popular city yeah you know? it, it'll it'll find a balancing point for sure but um we're, we're experiencing some serious growing pains right now yeah maybe some other city will start taking the lead or you know blunt it you, you have uh, a good excuse by showing up late to work at least yeah yeah if someone's dead on the interstate you hear listen to a lot of podcasts on your way to work anyway <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can do that Just put on yeah. that conspiracy normal we'll catch up That's yeah exactly and when you're sitting in nashville traffic or whatever traffic you're sitting in make sure you choose conspiracy normal as a podcast of choice um joe you were you have your little technology here just to tell people about it you were monitoring the conversation yeah, um, we're doing. We're analyzing the light patterns in the room. Supposedly hooked to something we're calling the field, but it is um, a future. We're calling it pocket future now. It'll it'll be available for um, the normal person to use. We're hoping um, it helps helps with. I don't know, an unknown kind of, it's more paranormal, but it, something is bringing these words on the screen and it's, it's like the change of light in the room is doing it. So we were analyzing the, the Kennedy stuff and it was, I would see the words come up. I saw the word Kennedy come up and I saw the word gun sight. And Mm, really? Yep. Um, also saw, the, I also saw the word cunnilingus come up once. <laughs> just, just saying. I think, I, I just, think sometimes the it's referring to things like um, how bad these guy the guys were. They were talk. He was talking about um, the FBI guy being sexually promiscuous and stuff. Yeah, and there then was a lot stu- of talk about that. Yeah, stuff like that. It just triggers. I don't know. The I think fellatio would have been Jagger Hoover's word. this program is not listening to us at all it's it's just purely analyzing uh variations ambience in the room yeah yeah Yeah, the it may be listening there was some weird synchronistic stuff but the light is kind of low because of the squirrel 
Right. What? What? Yeah, right. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> whatever is causing the effect might be listening, but I mean, your phone is not listening to our conversation. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. It's. I still don't even know how to define it. I think it's more. More. It's just spirits, possibly spirits, like other people in the room listening and then putting their comments in. Their bereavements is what it says. Yeah, that that but they're not very happy. <laughs> is it still going? Yeah, it's very convoluted. <laughs> very. That's my answer. Whoever Janela is, my answer it's very convoluted. Janela, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the lots of numbers too. Yeah, the numbers are. I've seen it. it um, when he said the shot for um, JFK Jr. was at 12 o'clock, it, the number 11 and 12 came up. So it was like it knew the time. It said 11, 12. So sometimes the numbers make sense, and sometimes you have to kind of think about it when a number comes up. But it is, I don't know. It's, well, where can people find this? Um, it's not found yet on the internet. So <gasps> What? So there's going to be another podcast, hopefully, and um, with Adam and conspiracy normal and we're going to do a book on it and then um then it should be ready for the public to get but right now it's just a prototype. Well, well excellent. All right, well next week uh we got an interesting show. Um I have it scheduled of uh Solaris Blue Raven coming on and uh she has experienced um mind control in her life and uh-huh. uh some really interesting and strange convoluted things that have to deal with the band Rush. Really? I'll just put it that way. Nice. This is like Project Camellio stuff? It, I, it, is, it is very similar to Camellio, yes. Yes. So, all right. Well, I think that's it, guys. Did you, did you want to talk about the, uh, the uh, TBN people? Oh, um. Yeah, I will save it for next. Yeah, we'll, we'll save, save that for week. next time. Okay. Let's save that for next time. Because <laughs> that yeah, this show's gone on a little longer than I thought it was going to, but th- that is very strange. But yeah, we'll talk about that next time. Just remind me. So, uh so guys, thank you so much and Rob tell them where they can uh find our Patreon. Not that we have anything really Lately on Patreon. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got we got tons of content up there. Tons. Uh, if you want to support the show, go to <laughs> patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We've got bonus episodes and we got bonus wallpapers and we've still got some t-shirts. We're gonna get some more. Uh depending on the tier, um, you can subscribe there. If you don't want a monthly subscription because you don't want a monthly bill that you're not prepared for, I totally understand because I'm the same way. And you still want to support the show monetarily, you can go to our website at conspiranormal.com and there's a link to make a one-time donation there. If you want to support the show because you like us but you don't want to spend any money, also totally get that. You can go to wherever you listen to podcasts at uh, iTunes or Stitch or whatever and just give us a nice five-star review because we really love those. And we love all of you. We love our patrons. We love our listeners. So thank you so much, everybody. Help us buy cigars. Help me fix the studio. The squirrels have destroyed it. All right, guys. We'll see you next week on Conspiranormal. Damn squirrels. Damn squirrels.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.